everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm so excited to be here with you. We have a great show for you, a stellar lineup. We're going to be hearing during the second half of the show from Craig McIbar, who is a longtime international human rights lawyer who served as director of the New York Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. And he has resigned after publicly accusing the UN of failing to address what he calls a textbook case of genocide unfolding in Gaza. So we're going to be talking to Craig about what it was that uh, made him resign. But before that, we are going to be talking to an all-Jewish panel, a Jewish Voice for Peace panel. Before I introduce those esteemed guests who are about to bring on, please do like the stream. It's a really easy way to support the show and bring people to the show. The more likes it gets, the better it does in the algorithm. Please subscribe if you haven't already subscribed. And to do that, you just hit subscribe and then you press the bell. That way you never miss any of these streams. And also we're going to be starting to do some extra streams. So not just Tuesdays at 7 p.m., which is, of course, when we stream every week. So you're definitely going to want to be notified of that. If you can, please become Patreon supporters. That helps this show happen. We couldn't do the show without you at Patreon. And that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. For $1 a month, you make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you make the show happen and you get all sorts of great Patreon-only exclusive content. So again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And we are so excited to bring this great panel together. We're going to be talking to Rosalind Pacheski, a political scientist and member of Jewish Voice for Peace, who was arrested protesting outside of Chuck Schumer's house last month. Jay Saper is an artist, translator, educator, organizer, and also member of Jewish Voice for Peace. And Brant Rosen is a Reconstructionist rabbi of Sedek, Chicago, an anti-Zionist synagogue he co-founded in August 2015. And he's also co-chair of the Jewish Voice for Peace Rabbinical Council. So welcome, Roz, Jay, and Rabbi Brant. How are you? Happy to be here. Thank you, Katie. Of course. Thank you all for all that you've been doing. You've been so active. We have some great footage. In fact, just yesterday, I was with some of you at the Statue of Liberty where you were saying not in our name, never again is now, and ceasefire now. Brad, can you take share with people the Democracy Now! coverage of that event? It was pretty stunning. I'm trying to build on the suspense. We could also start, if it's better, Brad, with some of their other actions. We could start with their action at Grand Central. Norman Finkelstein himself, none other than Norman Finkelstein, attended the Grand Central action and also mentioned that it was breathtaking. So let's take a look at the Grand Central Station action. Does one of you want to set up what happened? Or it kind of speaks for itself, I guess. At Grand Central? Yeah. Jay, do you want to tell how that was organized? Yeah, so thousands of Jewish New Yorkers shut down the world's biggest train station during rush hour traffic to call for a ceasefire. It was the largest act of civil disobedience New York City has seen in 20 years since the beginning of the Iraq War. Yeah. So let's take a look. 
York's famous Grand Central Station. And you can see banners reading, Palestinians should be free. Thousands of members of Jewish Voice for Peace and their allies shut down the main terminal of Grand Central Station during rush hour. 400 people were arrested in what's believed to be the largest sit-in protest New York has seen in over two decades. This is the Jewish Voice for Peace to support the protests. The turnout is massive. Thousands of New Yorkers united in a call for peace. At one point, there were so many protesters, the terminal was closed. The group, made up mostly of Jewish New Yorkers, is calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Wearing T-shirts that read, not in our name. Right now, you are hearing thousands of Jewish New Yorkers who are raising our voices. So clear that our safety can never come at the expense of another community's safety. of Jewish activists, people from all backgrounds were here. I'm here because the U.S. government is funding the bombardment, the indiscriminate bombing of 2.2 million Palestinians in Gaza who have no access to fuel, have no access to medical supplies. Um, their hospitals are being bombed, their schools are being bombed. There is nowhere to go. What's happening to Palestinians has been happening for decades and it must end now. Sources say NYPD arrested close to 300 people, possibly more. It's been a pretty extraordinary night inside Grand Central Terminal. Take a look right behind me here. Members of that Jewish activist group standing on a ledge next to the departure sign. You've got uh, the NYPD trying to get them down. This was sort of reminiscent of uh, a protest back in 1991 when members of ACT UP went on that ledge and uh, protested. So. What you're watching right now are members of the Jewish Voice for Peace being taken into custody. They are demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. And uh, for the most part, it's been pretty peaceful here. My Jewish tradition teaches me that life is precious. And that is why so many of us are doing all that we can to try to save lives in Gaza to call for an immediate ceasefire so that Gaza can live. So there's more to come, and we were going to be talking about some of the more to come that has happened since that video. But I guess I just wanted to start off by asking, what is Jewish Voice for Peace? Tell us about the history of it and when it was founded and what motivated each of you to join. Sure. Rabbi Brandt, tell us about the history. You've probably been in it longer than any of us. You're muted. What a metaphor for being silenced over your views. <laughs> I will not be silenced. So Jewish Voice for Peace was founded uh, in the mid-90s. It was originally uh, a local San Francisco organization, and then it became a national organization when it merged together with other Jewish peace and justice organizations throughout the country. And it's grown steadily since that time. And it really is a Palestine solidarity organization, I think, at its heart. It is a group of Jews guided and inspired by Jewish tradition and Jewish historical experience and Jewish culture to stand with the oppressed and call out the oppressor. And uh, as you saw from that very powerful video, particularly when this is being done in our name by the state of Israel, it is 
the largest Jewish anti-Zionist organization in the world. It's also one of the largest Palestine solidarity organizations in the world. And it, you know, I think, tragically, I would say, it tends to grow at times like this. I became very involved with it in 2008 during another onslaught on Gaza. It was known as Operation Cast Lead. And I was a congregational, I, I am still a congregational rabbi, but I was, in my former congregation, I was moving closer and closer toward taking a Palestine solidarity approach. And 2008, 2009 was really the final straw for me. And I broke with my lifelong liberal Zionism, so-called, and said that I can't do this anymore. You know, I can't justify this. I can't rationalize this. And um, I became involved with Jewish Voice for Peace, among other things. And then a few years later, in 2014 or 15, no, no, it was 2012, I'm sorry, co-founded the the Rabbinical Council of Jewish Voice for Peace with Rabbi Alyssa Wise and have been calling JVP my, my institutional and spiritual Jewish home ever since. I was the next generation, I guess. I would say I've been a Palestine solidarity person in my heart and in my politics for most of my life. But I didn't really know about Jewish Voice for Peace. I went into Jewish Voice for Peace in 2013. Somebody brought me in. It was around BDS. It was around challenging our pension system, TIAA CREF. And I went and com- <laughs> confronted the, the, the guy who was the president of it. And BDS, for people who don't know, that's boycott, divest, sanction. Yes. We were trying to get the TIAA CREF to divest from, you know, Zionist and military corporations that were funding Israel. But I really came in with lots of other people, as Rabbi Brand said, at times of crisis, that's when we gain many, many new members. Like right now, we're, we're absolutely overwhelmed with our new members. In 2013, 2014, there was another horrible siege on Gaza. It was the most horrible until now. And I, with many, many other people, joined Jewish Voice for Peace. And I, like Rabbi Brandt, I quickly realized this is my political home. This is what I've been looking for my whole life, trying to be a Palestine solidarity person, not really figuring out where is the, where is the, the place for this? Where's my community? And here it is. And it's an extraordinary experience, not just to be, you know, validated in your politics and in your passion to support Palestinians. Mine is rooted in close friends, my mentor in college, my students, many Palestinians who have deeply affected my life and been my dear friends. But it's also the experience of being in solidarity with many others and doing the actions that you're showing here together. It's our hearts are broken and we're also steadfast. We are determined we are going to stop this war and get a ceasefire. We're going to do it. And what about you, Jay? I grew up hearing stories from my Aunt Jerry, who grew up in Jackson, Mississippi during Jim Crow. Her synagogue was bombed when she was a child, and her rabbi's home was bombed because of her community's work to support the Black freedom struggle. I learned from her that my Jewish tradition means that we take action for justice. And so I've been supporting justice for Palestinians organizing in the Jewish community for over a decade. 
when I was an undergraduate student at Middlebury College, I started a Students for Justice for Palestine chapter there. I faced an expulsionary hearing in college uh, for my activism around divestment. And I feel so grateful and honored to get to reunite uh, with one of my co-defendants in that trial just the other week in the Washington, D.C. jail. After Rabbi Brant Rosen delivered such passionate remarks on the Washington National Mall to the largest gathering of Jews in history in solidarity with Palestinians, we staged a massive sit-in at Congress, one of the largest sit-ins Congress has ever seen. Over 300 of us got arrested and where I reunited uh, with one of my friends who over a decade ago, we, we began organizing together. What is it about your Jewish identity for, for each of you? Because I think you probably have, in some ways, it's we share things in common, in some ways it's different. What is it about being Jewish that makes what you're doing part of your identity? Maybe I'll take a first try at that. I think I would say, I would answer that two ways. I think I would answer it, you know, similar to what Jay was saying about his own uh family experience. I I was always raised to believe that to be Jewish meant to stand for justice. Um, I come from a family in which those two things were just synonymous and and really kind of taken for granted that that's really what it meant to be Jewish. My my parents were, particularly my mother, were powerful role models um, in that regard. You know, I think there was a great deal of cognitive dissonance when it came to Israel and Zionism. Uh, because we also, my family, identified deeply with Israel. We have family there. We, um, you know, have a strong connection to Israel through my family. And so that was something I always struggled with and had a hard time squaring. Um, and, you know, eventually, as I said, broke with. Uh, and my folks, to their credit, um, you know, they uh, they understood. They respected my, my decision. Uh, they they watched my evolution, and I think in some ways kind of were partners in that as well in some ways. You know, the other thing I would say from a spiritual point of view is that, um, you know, and this is something that Jay said as well, that, you know, in, the, in that video that all life is precious, that to me has always been my understanding of the central teaching of Torah, that all human beings were made in the divine image. We learn that in the book of Genesis. There's a famous Talmudic debate about this, about what is the most foundational teaching from Torah. And Rabbi Ben Azai uh, differs with another rabbi who says it's treat your na- love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, no, it's that all human beings are made in the divine image. That um, treat your neighbor as yourself uh, has to do with with your immediate community. But when you talk about all human beings are basically children of God, that means everyone. That means Jewish, not Jewish, Israelites, Moabites, you know, all the ites. (laughs) Um, And that is something that I I cherish deeply, and particularly it serves me well at times like this. Um, You know, at the the rally and the the action that Jay was talking about, or just watching that video from Grand Central, to me, the core of that statement was so deeply Jewish in as much as that it's a universal statement that, you know, we are all connected to our, our basic and common humanity. Rabbi, did you have an aha moment with Zionism when you really realized you couldn't stay silent anymore? Yeah, 
so it was a, a gradual evolution, uh, a process of just questioning and questioning and struggling. But my breaking point, as I said, was 2008. And I, I had signed a, a letter, which was a big deal for me, um, condemning the blockade when it started in 2007. And that was, for me, at that time, sticking out my neck because I was learning more and more from friends about what was going on in Gaza. And, and then when Operation Cast Lead broke out, I remember vividly, I was sitting in front of my computer reading the news reports and the initial reports were just, just horrible. I mean, what we're seeing now just is so much farther beyond what we could ever imagine. But I was reading about, back then, uh, it was a, an assault on Gaza City, which is now currently being leveled as we speak. But the initial attack killed hundreds of people at a, at a police cadet graduation ceremony, and it also killed numerous hundreds of civilians and children. And I just remember reading this news and just thinking, I, I just can't do this anymore. You know, I, and I had been writing a blog, mostly to keep in touch with my, my congregants, but also increasingly just sharing my thoughts about the world. And I wrote a blog post saying, um, this is a war crime. And I'm not going to apologize for this anymore. And I'm, I'm tired of it. And that was really my breaking point. And I've been kind of going down that road ever since. Wow. And Roz, what about you? Did you start out anti-Zionist on or? No, my, I grew up in a very liberal Zionist family in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My family believed very much in the state of Israel. My father went there. My grandmother went there. I went there when I was 16 years old, and it happened to be the beginning of the civil rights movement. So like Jay, for me, there's a connection between anti-racism and supporting Palestine. It, it, they're, they're integrally woven. When I went to Israel, I was 16, and I witnessed racism on a kibbutz. I was talking to a black man. He happened to be an African Jew. But they wouldn't even let us go near Palestinians, Right. And I was just having a conversation. And this white woman with a very distinct Brooklyn accent came up to me. She said, don't talk to him. And I said, well, why not? She said, he's African. I thought, what? I was becoming a civil rights activist. I was becoming an anti-racist. And I thought, this is not what we learned. And I thought justice was universal. And I thought justice was related to anti-racism. And I thought justice, as our dear friend Esther Farmer always said, is not just for us. So I was so shocked and upset. And I came home and I was giving talks around town. I, in high school, I was like this little public speaker. And the rabbi, a local rabbi, repudiated me in front of elders in the community and told them, wrote to them and said, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's just a young girl. And it's not like that. I was just there. She's wrong. And there, so you can't say for me, anti-racism, supporting Palestine and feminism are completely interlinked. That was the beginning of all of those for me. And then I just grew with many circumstances and historical context as the years went by. That was my aha moment. And Roz is a very, I didn't have time to read Roz's full biography, but she is not only distinguished professor emerita of political science at Hunter College and the Graduate Center, but she's a widely published feminist scholar, recipient of a MacArthur Genius Fellowship, and her book, Abortion and Women's Choice, The State, Sexuality, and Reproductive Freedom, was cited by the United States Supreme Court. 
and its landmark decision, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. So how is this a feminist issue for you? Entirely. I mean, I, I could go on. I don't want to go on too long. First of all, just think about the legendary feminist anti-war movements. Just think about Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Just think about Code Pink. Just think about all the women in black groups. Just think about feminists everywhere who have said masculinist militarism is destroying the world. We cannot support that. We cannot support war. It never solves problems. Think about, and I'm going to say this right here. I haven't said this before. But there, there is a hostage named Vivian Silver. You've probably read about her. I heard about her. Someone sent me a message, and then there was a whole article in the Washington Post. Vivian Silver is one of the hostages kidnapped by Hamas, 74 years old, a lifelong feminist peace activist who marched with Women Wage Peace in, uh, in Israel, who oppo- has consistently opposed Israel's policies, which takes a lot of guts in Israel. There's a lot of censuring and ostracizing of people. She even ferried Gazan children to Israeli hospitals. She's in custody still with 241 other hostages. And I am not going to applaud that. I am not going to celebrate that, what Hamas did. Those were war crimes. But there is no equivalence between that and the genocide that Israel is committing. And I think of genocide actually as a prevention of the reproduction of an entire people. That's what it is. I mean, if you look historically always at the occupation, what it did, closing checkpoints, women giving birth at checkpoints, hospitals, under, and especially in Gaza. Before this, how do you have a safe childbirth? How do you take care of your children and family without sanitation, without water, without electricity? You can't do it. Or when your home is being demolished around you, how do you take care of families? And that's what Palestinian women do. It is a fairly patriarchal culture. Women are taking care of children and the families. They do it heroically. And I have to say, I don't look to men for solutions. I don't. I'm not, not the men who are in power. I'm looking to our movement. And one more thing. This was my, this is in Grand Central and then yesterday at the Statue of Liberty. I had never heard this before, but a song, where you go, Palestine, I will go. You are my people. You are mine. This comes from the book of Ruth. That was my favorite part of the Old Testament. As a child, Ruth saying to Naomi, Naomi says to Ruth, I mean, their, their men were all killed in war, right? Naomi's husband is dead. Her sons are dead. Her two daughters-in-law are there. And she says to them, you go and be with your people in your village, wherever you came from. And Ruth refuses. And she says, whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people are my people. Thy God is my God. And that's in a song now that we're singing to Palestine. That's incredible. That means there's a feminist anthem that's becoming part of our movement. 
And I am so incredibly overwhelmed and heartened by that. And I think that um, speaks to the kind of movement we're building. Thanks. And Jay, what about you? I grew up in a small Jewish community in the Midwest where the most fervent Zionists were Christian Zionists. And there are more Christian Zionists in the world than there are even Jews. My parents raised me to speak up, to question abuses of power. And so they've been so proud of me to take action that I believe is important to join communities that are taking action together for justice. And this evening, while we're talking right now, my mom is supporting her friend by attending a memorial service with her. My mom's friend's close friend was killed in Gaza and 15 members of his family were killed as well. And so that is through our community here that we transform grief into action. And that's why we're doing everything we can to bring about a ceasefire. And were you raised by anti-Zionist parents or non-Zionist parents, or did you have an evolution there? I grew up without a connection to the state of Israel. Again, the most fervent Zionists in my community were Christian, and, and my, my parents raised me to speak up when I saw something that was wrong. And so that certainly supported me and cultivated me in articulating and coming to practice my anti-Zionist politics in community with Jewish Voice for Peace. And also, am I correct, Jay, that you speak Yiddish? He translates Yiddish. You're an Yiddish expert. Yeah, so talk about that. Yeah, so every night that I've spent in jail these past couple of weeks, I've actually spent time speaking Yiddish inside with fellow activists who are Yiddishists who are so passionate about our language, one of many Jewish languages from around the world, the majority of the speakers were massacred by the Nazis during the Holocaust. Our love of Yiddish comes from a deep commitment to supporting all vulnerable cultures. It comes from a commitment to challenging fascism, to challenging the erasure of culture. It also comes from a deep commitment to internationalism. Yiddish is a language of diaspora. We as a Jewish people have existed between and among people all around the world. We have flourished without militaries in relationship to and learning from and shaping many other cultures, many other languages. I've started to help Roz on a research project, um, her family. He's brilliant. And where they come from, the shuttle that her family comes from called Disna. And what we have, what we have of that town today is a, is a Yitzker book, a, a book written by survivors in Yiddish. And so I've been supporting Roz and learning more about her family's history in that town, which I've been able to access through translating the Yiddish for her. And I see that as compelling me to take action to support Palestine right now, because 
what we are doing is trying to make sure that the memorial books that will be written about this moment do not get thicker by a single page. That there is a living, breathing Palestinian culture in Gaza left, not just an archival remnant of it. And so my passion for Yiddish and my speaking of Yiddish and cultivating new Yiddish art while also translating Yiddish poetry from the ghettos and from the forests where partisans fought against the Nazi, that same love of Yiddish is what compels me to speak out today against what Israel is doing to the Palestinians in Gaza. And Yiddish, of course, in many ways is a language and a culture that the founders of Israel were quite ashamed of. They suppressed it. They wanted, they made Hebrew the official national language as part of the ethno-nationalist politics. Yeah, there's, of course, as you were saying, Jay, there's a, an internationalist, I mean, it, and diasporic culture that is the opposite of, of Israel in many ways, which is based around an, a, a physical nation, which is, I'm glad you're, you're, I mean, this is fascinating because this is a type of, because of Israel, people don't understand that there's all the, this Jewish heritage and culture and tradition and ethos that's really antithetical to Israel because Israel claims to speak for all Jews. It's also important to keep in mind that Judaism itself came out of the diaspora. Judaism itself was a response to living in diaspora. And for thousands of years, Jewish spiritual and cultural creativity flourished in the soil of the diaspora. And Israel, Zionism really arose as a movement relatively recently in Jewish history, really in the late 19th century. They espoused this concept in Hebrew called shlilat galut, negating the diaspora. They saw the diaspora as something to be ashamed of. And they lifted up this kind of nation statist form of Judaism, which was just radically counter to everything it ever meant to be Jewish. And so the fact that for so many people now, Judaism equals Zionism, it, it really flies in the face of history. And I think people need to understand what Judaism is and where it came from. Yeah, can you talk about that? That the fact that, as you just said, people conflate the two things. And and the irony is that the people who conflate conflate being Jewish with being a Zionist are kind of rabid anti-Semites who use those terms interchangeably. And then places like Israel, Israeli government, and APEC and, and um the AD, Anti-Defamation League. So can you guys talk about that? Roz, do you wanna Well, we can all talk about it. I mean, the conflation of anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism is such a category mistake. It, it's nonsensical. Criticizing a government's policies is not the same thing as espousing that whole nation state. I am not, Israel is not my homeland. I'm a citizen of the United States. Ethno-nationalism is vicious wherever it is. It's really a toxic creation I'm sorry, of modernity. And I think we have to stand against it wherever because it always means victimizing and marginalizing and ostracizing, if not killing, whole groups of people. Um, so when Jews who went to Palestine and became Zionists embraced that kind of thinking, it was a tragedy. It was a tragedy for, for Jews in history. 
And we didn't know, you know, we thought, well, I mean, all the mystification that says you have to embrace the state of Israel in order to be safe as a Jew, it's the opposite. It makes us less safe. Well, October 7th, that put an end to that, I think, once and for all. I wish it put an end. I don't think it did. I don't think most people think that, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Well, they're saying this is the worst, the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, and it occurred in Israel, which was ostensibly created to safeguard Jewish lives. So, Logically, you're right. <laughs> Logically, you're right, but sadly, I think for lots of people, it's so the, the solution is to kill off the people of Gaza. Right. And that shows the work we have, the, right. the, the nature of the work we have to do, you know, yeah. the hard work we have to do. And we have to be clear on what anti-Semitism is when we also challenge what it isn't. When we also speak up against everyone who supports justice for Palestine and is falsely smeared as anti-Semitic. A 19-year-old Nazi was indicted this June for planning to carry out a mass shooting at my congregation, my synagogue, where I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan, Congregation Sherry Zedek, where I had my be mitzvah, where my grandparents had their funerals, where my parents still attend services. The gunman planning this massacre was planning to carry it out on the fifth anniversary of the Christchurch massacre at the mosques in New Zealand. He had also written about his admiration for the shooter who carried out a shooting against Black people in a grocery store in Buffalo. This makes so clear that anti-Semitism is absolutely a threat to our community. And how we can confront it is by taking action against Islamophobia, speaking up against anti-Black racism, recognizing that we have to confront white supremacy together, that our safety and our freedom and our liberation is intertwined. So we refuse narratives that try to pit our communities against one another and know that Palestinians deserve to live in freedom and with dignity and supporting justice for Palestinians brings us closer to a world where we all get to live with justice, where we all get to feel safe. And Jay's story underlines how the same people who hate Jews hate Black people. The same people who hate Muslims hate Jews. I mean, that hatred, you know, it is basically about white supremacy. And we have to join together. There's this insidious um, kind of Jewish attitude toward anti-Semitism, which is that it's somehow exceptional, that it's somehow a unique form of hatred, different from all others in the world, and that to be a Jew just means to be inherently unsafe more than anybody else, to be the, you know, the, the archetypal victim-targeted uh, person in the world. And I think after October 7th, we're seeing that meme, you know, that trope being spread through the Jewish community in really, really destructive ways. When what we need to be doing right now more than ever, along with what Jay and Roz are saying, is, is we need to be finding safety through solidarity because you know, hatred against a particular group of people is, is the same. You know, we're seeing a rise in intolerances all over the world for the last 10 plus years. If ever there was a time for solidarity, it's right now. But the, the circling of the wagons in the Jewish community, I just find to be so toxic and insidious. And that trope has been cultivated deliberately by Zionists and Zionist organizations 
to garner support, to use the politics of fear and make people feel that they have no choice. So we have to show them an alternative, a different way of being, a different approach to justice. Right. And it it is, I mean, what do you guys say to all these people who say, without Israel, Jews would be killed? Without Israel, Israel is the only reason we haven't had another Holocaust. What's your response to those things? Because I keep encountering that. So why haven't you moved to Israel? (laughs) You're sitting sitting right here on Broadway in your fur coat. (laughs) I would say it's the opposite. I think think Israel makes Jews unsafe all over the world. You know, I think, look, if we all agree that it's anti-Semitic, to associate Jews with uh, all Jews everywhere with the actions of the state of Israel. The problem is that Israel purports to be the, the state for all Jews everywhere. So everything Israel does impacts on all of us. And when Israel acts oppressively, that reflects on Jews throughout the diaspora and makes us patently unsafe. And Zionism in Israel does no favors for Jews and is certainly not a recipe for Jewish safety and security, and it never has been. Someone in the comments, I just want to debunk this, but you, Rabbi, would be better served. Someone said, Israel and Judaism makes you unsafe. Israel makes you unsafe. I would say Judaism doesn't. No, 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 no. I mean, we just, I think we just addressed the issue that Israel and Judaism are not the same thing. Right. To my mind, Judaism is a spiritual system for trying to find, you know, injustice throughout the world and and, and healing it and addressing these injustices wherever we happen to live. You know, Zionism is a political movement that arose, you know, very, very recently that, as Roz was saying, is a form of Jewish ethno-nationalism that doesn't make anybody safe. But I will say our actions in Grand Central, in the rotunda of the office building, in the Statue of Liberty, all of these actions have aroused tremendous support and from lots of people who are both Jewish and not Jewish, lots of Muslims, lots of South Asians. I'm sure Jay and Rabbi Brandt have also gotten so many thank yous and comments from people saying, oh, we didn't know that this way of thinking existed and this is so encouraging. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I'll have older, you know, like conservatives or pep the term pet progressive except on Palestine, they'll say to me, you're making Jews less safe by criticizing Israel. I'm like, no, we're doing, we're running interference for Israel. Israel's making us unsafe by claiming to act in our names. It's not only the right thing to do to say that Israel isn't acting in our names, but it happens to be, I think, like a safety issue as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I never experienced, I was walking down the street one day in my, I mean, I have to say, I've felt very, insulated from anti-Semitism. But I one day was walking, little old lady walking down the street in my neighborhood, and a guy, a tall white guy, said, dirty Jew. To me, I mean, nobody ever said that to me in my entire, in New York City, in my entire 81 years, nobody had ever said that to me. And I was so shocked I couldn't say anything. You know, where is that coming from? So it's real. I mean, it's very real, but Israel does nothing to address anti-Semitism. They just stir it up. Yeah. And I wanted to show, let's see, we have some photos and videos of, of the great action that you guys did at the Statue of Liberty. Oh, good. 
So there's you, there's Roz, black shirt, not in our name. And this was amazing. So you can see all these people at the foot of the Statue of Liberty. It says never again for anyone. Ceasefire now. The whole world is watching. And there's Roz getting arrested at another protest. You guys have been busy. You got arrested in October outside of Chuck Schumer's house. So what made you guys choose to do a protest there? Do you want to say, Jay? We've been organizing every waking second since October 7th. We held a march to his home, Senator Schumer's home, that very night. As the majority leader of, of the Senate, he presides over a body that sends $3 billion, $3.8 billion in military funding to Israel each and every year. Now, the Congress is even looking to expand that to over $14 billion to Israel, which to its military specifically, you funding those bombs that are being used right now to rain down upon the people of Gaza. And so that is why we showed up at his doorstep. That is why Roz was blockading the busiest thoroughfare in all of Brooklyn, Grand Army Plaza, right outside of his home, getting arrested to say business as usual cannot go on. This is a crisis. You must take action now for a ceasefire immediately and an end to U.S. military funding to Israel so we can suppress the root causes of this violence, which is oppression of the Palestinian people who've lived under 75 years of occupation and apartheid. And we have a role in challenging our own governments ongoing complicity and moral cover in those crimes. Do you think the Western media is complicit in suggesting that Judaism and Jewishness and Zionism are the same? Yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the mainstream media, when they go for comments about what's going on in the world. They go to Jewish community organizations like Jewish federations, like the Anti-Defamation League, like, you know, uh, Jewish establishment organizations that are thoroughly Zionist because they assume they speak for all Jews. And so that creates, you know, the impression among the readers that we are somehow a monolithic community and that we, we, we line up behind Zionism in the state of Israel, which is just absolutely not true. I think one of the wonderful things about these uh, JVP actions is that they are getting great press and JVP's image is being lifted up, I think, in an unprecedented kind of way. And it's, it's just wonderful. It's so liberating to see Jewish spokespeople like those of us in JVP speaking for a, a large and increasing order of the Jewish community that uh, is anti-Zionist, that doesn't support what Israel's doing and that stand with Palestinians. And I think there is a shift in the narrative. It's beginning, even in the mainstream media. I mean, I was quoted in the New York Times one sentence after our Grand Central um, action. And then the march in Washington on Saturday, it was Palestinian-led, hundreds of thousands of people. That was important because it was the first time it was the largest representation of Palestinians in the public eye in Washington, D.C., saying not only ceasefire now, not only end the occupation, which really goes for 75 years, not since 1967, but since 1948. Um, 
saying, we're not going to vote for you. We're, we're done. And lots of young people are feeling that way too. So the political pressure is on. Lots of young people in the State Department have signed a letter. Young, you know, um, staffers in Congress are starting to listen, to speak out, because they don't agree and they really see this as a, as a bad foreign policy for the U.S. Just as, so... I think there is a shift. I think one of the tensions, though, in do, doing Palestine solidarity work as a Jew and one of the potential pitfalls is that um, that we not make it too much about us. Uh, and, you know, I think that's something we need to be aware of, that the first order of business is ending the oppression of Palestinians and liberating Palestinians and not liberating Judaism. I mean, that's important, too. Um, but the I think we, we need to be very, very very clear that we're, we're, if we're in solidarity with Palestinians, it means we're accountable to them. And so I think that's, I think the more successful we are, I think the more that's going to be um, something that we're going to need to address, that we, we don't want to hog the spotlight for these wonderful Jews who are standing in solidarity with Palestinians, as important as the work that we're doing is. To be fair, the second half of my show is going to be with Craig McIver, who was talking about, you know, resigning from the UN. But I also do think it's important to show the world that the Jews who claim to speak for all of us and stand with Israel don't have a monopoly of what it means to be Jewish. No question. No question. And that, as you guys have articulated so well, it actually, I would argue, like the Jewish thing to do is to be in solidarity with Palestinians. It's not to be on the side of settler colonialism and ethno-nationalism. Jay and I are part of Jewish Voice for Peace New York City, and I think Rabbi Brandt would really agree with this. We take our aim from Palestinian partners. Our Palestinian partners, we consult all the time. What should we do? We, we've gotten the, this idea that speaking out as Jews is helpful right now, that saying ceasefire now is the most urgent thing at this moment. But we feel like we're part of a movement that is guided by Palestinians, and that should always be the case as long as you're fighting for Palestinian liberation. Yeah, that's key to any solidarity movement is that kind of accountability. And what is next for you guys? More zip ties. <laughs> <laughs> there are some things in the, in the works. Um, there's a new uh, initiative, ad hoc initiative you may have heard of called Rabbis for Ceasefire. And there are many members of the JVP Rabbinical Council who are involved in it, but it's actually reached out beyond JVP. And we're, we're actively trying to organize a larger group of rabbis uh, who are not affiliated with JVP and may not be ready to be, but um, are ready to stand up publicly and say ceasefire now. And so we put out a a statement and a viral video uh, last week. There's going to be um, some more activities and actions in the future. Uh, so that's something I'm really excited about. Roz and Jay, anything else you want to announce? Can we reveal what's coming? Jay knows more than I do, but it's sort of on hope. We go day to day and week to week. Yeah, and I would say in response as well to what the media has done and what narratives have have changed 
we have constantly been erased. And any change in narrative that Rawls has described has been because of our organizing, the ways that we've intervened to challenge that. The day after our first march on October 7th to Senator Schumer's home, the Washington Post published an article that said Jews are united in solidarity with their support for Israel. The day after Raz and I were arrested, taken the next week outside of his home, the day that we were on a bus, there were multiple city busfuls driving us to jail. Somebody announced on that bus, they did a mic check and announced, we have somebody on this bus who's 81 years old. She's older than the state of Israel. Raz is a living example that Judaism beyond Zionism is possible, that we can build a world beyond Zionism. But that next day, the New York Times on their cover published an article that said Jews across our differences are coming together to support Israel. So there was that constant erasure. And what we knew is that we would have to take historic, unprecedented action that has never happened before to create such a spectacle that could not be ignored. And that's what we did when we staged that massive sit-in in Congress, which was the largest mass arrest of rabbis in U.S. history. More than the 16 rabbis were arrested in St. Augustine, Florida with Dr. King during the Civil Rights Movement. That's what we did when we took over Grand Central Station, the biggest train station in the world, completely shutting it down during rush hour traffic on Friday. That's how we got on the cover of the New York Times again. It isn't just that the reporters started to ask us questions. It's that we took action. 400 people were arrested that night. Thousands were packed inside. Thousands, I, I believe you even tried to get in and couldn't because there were so many thousands already inside that you joined the thousands overflowing outside into the streets of midtown Manhattan. We know that the only way we can change narratives, the only way that we can build the international outcry necessary to stop the bombing is to keep organizing, to keep taking collective action on unprecedented scales. And so that's what we're going to continue to do. The night that I got out of out of jail um, with, with Roz after that picture that we saw outside of Schumer's, I got out of jail at 5 a.m. that morning and immediately got into organizing what we were doing next in D.C., the next day, I was supposed to be at the Yiddish Book Center for an exhibit that was opening that I have work in. And I've been planning to be at that exhibit opening for a long time. And the curator was invited me and excited for me to be there. I, I was in a car down to D.C. and that where I locked myself in a hotel room with the rest of the core organizers of that demonstration all week. Because this is what we are doing in this moment. And we're going to continue to organize, to devote every waking second to continue to build the international outcry necessary to stop these bombs and to bring about justice for, for the people of Gaza, the Palestinians in Gaza. Well, this has been so moving. We're going to show one more video of you guys at the Statue of Liberty. Here in New York, about 500 members of Jewish Voice for Peace and their allies rallied at the Statue of Liberty Monday to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. Protesters wore black T-shirts reading, not in our name. In a statement, Jay Saper of Jewish Voice for Peace said, quote, the famous words of our Jewish ancestor, Emma Lazarus, etched unto this very monument, compel us to take action supporting the Palestinians of Gaza, yearning to breathe free, he said. And that was really moving to be at the, the Statue of Liberty. So thanks for doing that. You know, that shot of the Statue of Liberty, it's, it's just a day old, but it's already iconic. 
you know, and, and these, these images speak so much louder than words. Um, it's just, I'm very, it's just very moving to be Jewish in this moment and see images like this. Well, I have to say, I have to say that it's Jay Saper and a group, a small group of young people who have the most brilliant, creative, aesthetic, moral, and political and strategic minds I've ever encountered in my life. I feel honored to be led by Jay and the others in my JVP community. It is unbelievable to be at this stage of my life and to have this extraordinary group of young people. They are the leaders. They are the innovators, the creators. And I have hope because of them. Well, this has been really great. And I'm so excited that you guys all came and we're going to have to do more of these and we'll do a panel that's, um, you know, interfaith uh, next. We'll do it uh, with Jewish guests and, and non-Jewish guests, uh, Palestinian guests and Jewish guests together. Um, and we are going to bring on Craig McIver, who actually in his letter uh, resigning from the UN cited the uh, Grand Central uh, protest. So that's a cool connection. So we're going to watch quickly uh, just a little bit of my Rashida Tlaib video because, again, she's being criticized for daring to stand up for Palestinians. Uh, it's pretty disgusting. If you're a Democrat or a Republican, you say something totally vile about Palestinians, like comparing them to Nazis, which an actual congressman did, nothing happens to you. But if you argue that Palestinians are human beings, you get into trouble. So thank you so much, Rabbi and Roz and Jay. And come back. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for having us. Lovely. It was really great. Thank you. I'm going to bring on Craig McIver, but Jay and Roz, do you want to say hi to Craig? Since I know you're fans, I'll bring you back on in case you do. Okay. Welcome, Craig McIver. Thank you for joining. Good to be here. I, I just have to say you are my hero. I, you know, we, I spent many, many years doing things in the UN with transnational feminist groups. I am a student and a scholar of human rights, international human rights. And to have you speak out at this time when the UN is, I'm sorry, doing nothing, when the Security Council is a disaster, thank you so much. Now, Roz, right, right back at you. You are my hero. So is Jay. I, I, I wrote in my letter and I've mentioned to everyone I've spoken to in the last several days how deeply, deeply moved. And I mean moved at a level that I haven't felt in a lot of years by the accident at Grand Central uh, Station uh, just several days ago. And how I think that is an absolute game changer and how it is providing a moral compass to people of every background uh, and helping them to make judgments about what's happening in the world, in particular what's happening in Gaza now, but even more more broadly. And, and people keep asking me, you know, where's my hope? And I keep saying it's not in states, it's not in international institutions, it's in civil society, it's in movements, it's in people like you who are standing up uh, for the cause of just basic human de decency. So thank you very much. And thank you, Jay, as well. Really inspired stuff. Thank you. Thank you. And also, please know that your words that you wrote in that letter reached everybody who took action to shut down Grand Central that evening and emboldened all of us to persist because we got to see the impact of our action by you citing it. And it inspired everybody
to continue to take action that we know we need to continue to do to continue to build that international outcry. So thank you. We're yeah, honored to share thank this you. program with you and honored for you speaking out in such courageous ways. Thank you. Well, thank you. Count on my solidarity uh, for this and for everything else that comes along on the road. Really, really nice to be in touch with you folks. Fantastic. Yeah. And thanks, Katie. Thank you so much and come back on all together. Okay. Okay. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. So Craig, thank you for joining. And again, Craig is a longtime international human rights lawyer who served as director of the New York office of the United Nations high commissioner for human rights. He resigned after publicly accusing the UN of failing to address what he calls uh, the, a textbook case of genocide that's happening in Gaza and his letter of resignation was leaked and became a bit of a viral sensation. So, uh, Craig, please tell us what made you uh, resign and write that scathing letter. Well, Katie, this conversation actually began in March after the series of atrocities that were happening on the West Bank, including the pogrom in Hawara and a number of Israeli military assaults on uh, Palestinians in the West Bank. And, um, you know, at that moment, I sensed a real careful, trepidatious approach on the part of the UN uh, that was not responding uh, with the level of concern and conviction that one would expect in the face of those kinds of atrocities. And I felt very much like this had been a trend that had been building over the course of many, many years, and it offended me. Uh, and so I was speaking out quite publicly as a UN human rights official, uh, as I have on human rights situations in dozens of countries all around the world and on all continents. But there's something different when you speak out on Israeli violations. There is a well-oiled machine out there that will persecute you like crazy, make your life a living hell for a period of time, smear you and attack you, and bring pressure on the UN itself. And that's exactly what happened. Um, there were a number of Israel lobby organizations that uh, in addition to doing all sorts of online smears and so on against me, brought pressure on the UN to try in some way to punish me. Now, of course, it would be absurd for a UN human rights official to be punished for speaking out on human rights in any direct way. But there was an impact, and I felt it very strongly, and there was an effort to silence me from the organization itself, from the political corridors of the uh, of the organization. And... Um, you know, I, I had always said in my work in the UN for 32 years that I would stay on the inside working as long as I felt like I could do more good on the inside than the outside. I come from the human rights movement outside of the UN. Um, and up until that point, I felt like, or let's say up until this year, I felt like I was doing more good. I was working in solidarity with human rights movements all around the world and able, I think, to make a, uh, to make a contribution without the kinds of constraints that I felt were growing in the organization. But this was something different. This was a real kind of a crackdown. And um, so I made a decision at that point that, you know, the time had come. And so I wrote to the High Commissioner for Human Rights in March already, told him I was concerned about these trepidatious approaches, about a lack of conviction, about what I perceived as open fear of powerful states like the U.S., the U.K., Israel, and of, you know, these uh, uh, lobby groups that had been set up to put pressure on the U.N., and then I thought we were losing, losing the way and that we needed to stand up and be more principled. Well, of course, since then, the situation only got worse in the West Bank, but then absolutely in Gaza, um, starting in the, with the October 
the October events. And that's when I sat down and decided to just clearly on the record in my capacity as the director of the Human Rights Office in New York uh, to put that letter to the senior most official responsible for human rights, the high commissioner, where I laid out my concerns with regard to Palestine, with the UN's role uh, for a very long time there, with the, the path that the UN was on that made it very ineffective in protecting Palestinian um, uh, human rights, and to set out what I thought was a more principled course that was more consistent with um, the norms and standards of the, of the organization. And interestingly, that letter was leaked first, as far as I can tell, to some Israel lobby groups, which used it to attack me. And then it went viral. And I have to say, Mazel Tov. <laughs> right. There was actually a tidal wave of support that far overwhelmed any of the attacks, criticisms, death threats that I've been receiving in recent days. Um, smears, you know, the smears, you know, we're all well aware of this tactic by these uh, pro-Israel groups that if you dare to criticize human rights violations committed by the Israelis, that they will smear you as an anti-Semite. So these, these groups actually put together a little research team and they dug out everything I've ever said publicly about human rights since the 1980s. And they, were never, they weren't able to find a single utterance of anything remotely anti-Semitic. So what they did was they, con they, they uh, consolidated all of the criticisms of Israeli violations I had made through the years and said, since he criticizes Israel, he's an anti-Semite, you know. And of course, we know the trick. We know it's not true, but it still hurts. And, you know, people who dedicate their life to fighting bigotry and, and for human rights and so on, when you hear those words, there's a little bit of a cut to it. And when you know anti-Semitism is a very real thing and there are Nazis marching in the streets and it's ascendant again and these far-right groups are uh, persecuting and killing uh, in the name of their insane ideologies, those words uh, hurt. I don't think they convince many people anymore. And as I pointed out in my letter, um, I said that, you know, criticism of Israeli human rights violations is not anti-Semitic any more than criticism of Saudi violations is Islamophobic, criticism of um, of violations from Burma is anti-Buddhist or criticism of, of violations by India is anti-Hindu. Uh, and I think it just bears repeating over and over again because it is a, a smear tactic that's, uh, that's used. But all of these things taken together created this climate of fear in the UN and I think knocked the UN off course together with a distortion of the political agenda that began with the advent of the Oslo process uh, 30 years ago. And so I made a number of comments about that as well and what I thought was a better course. So there's a lot I want to ask you about. Let's let's start off with one of the central kind of claims of your letter and your resignation, which is that what is happening now in Gaza is a genocide. And as you said, I know in other interviews, that's a very charged word. It's a very politicized word. But there is a real definition to it. And you are someone who's a human rights uh, attorney. So why why is it genocide? What's happening? It is a very charged word. It's a very abused word. People claim it uh, where it doesn't exist for political uh, gain, and they deny it where it does exist for political reasons as well. But I, I look at it through the lens of the UN Genocide Convention and the law as it stands there. Genocide, uh, and by the way, the, the convention is not just about punishment of genocide, it's about prevention of genocide. So it's not the kind of thing you can wait for the verdict of a court after Mass murders have, have taken place and people have been have been purged from their from their lands. Um, so I, I said we shouldn't be 
uh, so reticent to address what looks very much like emerging genocide. Um, and if you just look at the convention on, on genocide and you see uh, the acts that are laid out that are genocidal acts, things like serious harm, including bodily harm, killings, which we've already seen more than 10,000, that number is going to go up just in a matter of a few weeks. Uh, we've seen that, that number of killings. The imposition of conditions calculated to bring about a destruction of, uh, um, uh, or conditions of life calculated to bring out destruction. That one is non-controversial by now because of the siege on Gaza, the closure that's been in place for many, many years, which is specifically designed to affect the living conditions uh, of the Palestinian people, limiting the amount of food and fuel and water and sanitation and medicine and construction materials and anything necessary for a dignified life, calculated to make sure that it's not a place uh, where people are going to want to, to survive, making it hard for them to, uh, to, to survive. All of those acts so clearly documented. But what I said was very unique about this was the degree to which Israeli authorities have been explicit in their expressions of intent, because the Genocide Convention requires a specific intent to destroy in whole or in part a particular group as such, a group defined uh, in this case as Palestinians, uh, as Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinians more, um, more, more broadly. Normally, you've got to dig through all sorts of dark, sealed, secret records to identify intent in genocide. Here, you had the president, prime minister, senior cabinet officials, senior military officials, and others, uh, think tanks associated with and working with the government, clearly, publicly, and on the record stating their genocidal intent dehumanizing Palestinians, denying there's a difference between civilians and combatants, uh, calling for wholesale wiping out, calling for a new Nakba, the prime minister right. uh, invoking a biblical uh, verse that refers to uh, wiping out everybody, men, women, children, suckling babies, uh, livestock, the whole, so insane. The whole uh, population, sparing them not according to that verse. And this is, I mean, every day there are more and more of these. It's, this is the sound of impunity because people don't openly declare these things in public unless they're absolutely certain they're not going to be held accountable. So they have to be held accountable. Um, and in this case, such an extraordinary case of very clearly stated intent on the public record, I said, you have a prima facie case of genocide, not genocide used in a metaphorical way, but a textbook convention-defined case of genocide. And then when you add to that the context of the actions we're seeing now, which is that this is just the latest phase in a series of ethnic purges that began in 1948 with the Nakba and then continued um, uh, from 1948 and 1967 inside uh, portions of Israel where there were other ethnic cleansings taking place, after 1967 continuing unabated in the West Bank to the point where the West Bank you know, you've seen pictures of the map. There's very little left of Palestinian life in the West Bank. It's all settled. Uh, and now you see the final um, uh, portion of that move, which is the ethnic cleansing in Gaza, starting with the north of Gaza and working their, working their way systematically and horrifically southward toward the gate with, um, with Rafa, with Egypt, clearly with the intention of ultimately making living conditions impossible for those who survive in the hopes that they will then go and die in the Sinai Desert somewhere. Uh, problem then solved, you see. Um, so it is a, 
a very clear case. And, and one of the other things I found most disturbing about it was the degree of complicity by powerful Western governments, including the U.S. government, in these actions because, you know, international humanitarian... So the Genocide Convention requires action on the part of states uh, to stop this, to prevent it, and to stop it. And they are not acting to do that, to the contrary. And the Geneva Conventions require not just that states respect the Geneva Conventions, but they're also obliged to ensure respect for those conventions. In other words, to use whatever power influence they have over Israel to stop these atrocities from taking place. That's not what the U.S. has been doing. To the contrary, they've not only been breaching that, they've been taking it to the next level of complicity by funding, arming, providing diplomatic cover, uh, providing intelligence support, providing the veto in the Security Council in order to actively engage in supporting the Israeli assault on the people in Gaza. So it's very extraordinary. It would require a very principled and courageous position on the part of the UN, particularly the political leadership of the UN, which we have not seen. And at a moment like this, I mean, this is a moment in history that we are going to, those of us who get to survive are going to remember for many decades in the future. Uh, and um, at a moment like this, a careful, trepidatious, lackluster response is a breach of all of the norms upon which the organization was founded. And so I said so. Uh, and I included that genocide analysis in the letter as well. So let's say we had a courageous UN. What would they be doing? Well, you know, if you, I, I because, you know, I've worked on human rights in, as I said, dozens of countries on in all regions of, uh, of the world. There's a kind of a standard package here when you have these kinds of situations that are always applied, that include things like, first of all, a law-based response based on human rights law, humanitarian law, the charter, not deferring to some amorphous political formula or some kind of exceptionality where, yes, of course, the ideally, but that doesn't apply here, which is the way that Israel's been dealt with for many, many years by the UN, perhaps forever. Um, uh, but really getting back to the law, the requirements of human rights law, humanitarian law, international criminal law, international refugee law, and the charter itself. In all other situations, we demand equality. We would be demanding here equal rights for Christians, Muslims, and Jews. That's not happening. It's always, well, let's talk about two states and some Bantu stands in the West Bank, and let's not do anything to insist that Israel has to conform to international human rights standards as well. Let them have their ethno-nationalist state. Let them continue their uh, settler colonial project. Which they, of course, frame as... Israel's right to exist right. and the right to have a Jewish state. I mean, they, they frame it, right? Instead of framing it as a settler colonial project, they frame it disingenuously as a project of Jewish safety. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anywhere else, you know, there, there would be a very uh, clear proposition and there would be a demand for a transitional justice process. There'd be a demand for an international tribunal. There'd be a demand for the right to return of those who have been purged from the land and for compensation for for them, there would be a demand for the end of apartheid. There is an apartheid system. It's not even controversial in the international human rights community because it is a position that's been taken by every international human rights organization, is you know, mainstream Israeli human rights organizations, Palestinian, UN independent UN human rights mechanisms. That would be the, the focus of, uh, of, of attention as well. But none of that is being, there would be a move to provide protection for civilians, including a protection force in the country, as we've provided in so many other countries uh, around the world. So, so none of that applies because of this kind of idea of, of exceptionalism that is opposed. 
And what has happened instead is that, especially since Oslo, you've had this, this game, which is played in public, where people will give, say, some mantras like two-state solution, UN quartet, um, uh, Oslo, um, uh, you know, all, all of these kinds of, uh, you know, the peace process, all of these kinds of, of mantras that nobody believes really exist in real life that it's not possible to have a two-state solution anywhere because there's nothing left for a sustainable Palestinian state. And Israel is not, under this government or any subsequent government, going to give up enough land for a sustainable Palestinian state, one. Two is, even if you had a two-state solution, it wouldn't address the human rights questions, the inalienable rights of the Palestinian people, because they would be relegated forever, those who remain inside the Green Line, being second-class citizens who are not equal, who can't have nationality, who can't have the same economic, social, civil, political, and cultural rights uh, of other ethnic groups in the country. Um, and so that, that doesn't resolve it. But when you, when you don't want to address the real issues at hand, you'd simply say, we're going to have a two-state solution someday. But what has happened with behind the curtain of Oslo and the two-state solution um, uh, and, and, and the quartet and all of this. What's happened behind that curtain is that for this past 30 plus years, the situation has gotten worse and worse and worse. It has just been a smokescreen behind which you've had an exacerbation of the critical human rights situation of the Palestinian people, a continuation of settler colonialism, an expansion of illegal settlement activity. Uh, and that brings us to where we are today. And if the UN and the international community and some states in the West don't make a pivot toward human rights and away from this game that they've been playing for the past 30 plus years, uh, we're entering into a very, very dark chapter uh, in, in the history of the world. So I, I, I just think all we have to do is play by the rules here as we would insist in other places. And that's, that's the answer. You know, for me, you know, a single democratic secular state with equal rights for Christians, Muslims, and Jews, to which the Israeli lobby accuses me of calling for the destruction of Israel. And I say, I'm not calling for the destruction of Israel. I'm calling for the destruction of apartheid. I'm calling for equality. I'm calling for the salvation of Israel <laughs> uh, and Palestine, you know, in, in the process, uh, because this is, this is not, you know, if the argument is the safety of Israelis, this is not a path toward the safety of Israelis. Um, you know, this is a deeply racist, extremely violent path on which that country uh, has committed itself. And there is another way. It's called equality. But, you know, many in positions of authority, including in the UN, don't dare to say so. So Israel is kind of presenting what they're doing as within the rules of law. Um, they constantly say, you know, they have their talking points. So uh, Hamas uses human shields, which is funny because if they were using human shields, that would imply that it would stop them from doing what they're doing. In order to be an effective shield, Israel would have to not do what they're doing, but they're not. So they say that. Uh, then they say, you know, they had to kill this person, right? There was a Hamas person. So they have to kill countless civilians. Can you talk about all the ways they do violate human rights law? I know it's probably you'd be here like for, you know, a 24 hour marathon. You don't have that time. But just some of them like proportionality, distinction um, and also give people a sense of what 
what a country could do, right? Let's say Israel wanted to go after Hamas. And I mean, th- this this is not going to be solved militarily. But I'm just asking for like one discrete question of how does a country that fight, that wages war, that does not violate international law, what would that look like? So uh, th- those are all excellent questions. Um, you know, the thing on human shields, this is this is a, a standard tagline that's used when there are mass civilian casualties. Israel has done this in all of its previous attacks uh, in the past. The use of human shields doesn't mean that there are civilians around. It means that you intentionally take civilians and you, it's, by the way, we've seen the Israelis do uh, in the occupied territories. And, you know, you, you sort of parade them in front of you as a human shield. You put them on the jeep, you put them in a particular location and so on. I mean, Hamas doesn't do that. Hamas is located in one of the most densely populated civilian uh, territories in the world, not because they decided to locate themselves in the midst of civilians. They're Gazans. Many of them have never been outside the cage in their entire life. They were born into it. So, And that's not human shields being in those areas. And, and, you know, by the way, Israel has military command centers and and in densely populated civilian areas. So that's not, that doesn't mean human shields. Secondly, you know, even if you say that there is a combatant in the midst of those civilians and you're going after the combatant, that is not a justification under international humanitarian law. As you mentioned, there are principles that have to be respected. Proportionality is one of them. Principle of distinction between combatants and non-combatants and their facilities is, is another one. The principle of precaution is, uh, is another one. The law requires that you you look for lawful means that will spare civilians. You don't, uh, otherwise, you can just do what this insane minister in Israel asked for yesterday or the day before and just drop a nuclear weapon on Gaza, right? Because, oh, there's combatants everywhere, so we'll just, we'll just nuke the whole place. I mean, this is not a lawful justification. This is a genocidal uh, approach. So, so international law does not provide that out for them. Um, to, to answer your, your bigger question, what would you do uh, to end attacks by Hamas? You could end the occupation because it is an armed resistance group which is fighting against the, the occupation. Now, if you think that somebody in Hamas, and clearly in this case they have, have committed war crimes, you can hold them accountable under the rule of law. So, you know, I I remember very well after September 11th, our office issued an appeal to the United States to treat this as a crime against humanity and to go after the perpetrators under the rule of law, to bring them to accountability, bring them to trial, um, uh, and show the moral... um, high ground to those who would use violence versus those who would use the rule of law and international standards. Of course, the U.S. chose another course. Uh, they went on a global temper tantrum that ended up in the deaths of millions of civilians around the world. Um, so that is, I mean, that, that is a lesson that is to be learned. Um, if um, Israel wanted to see accountability for uh, Hamas perpetrators or those who commanded them who actually committed war crimes on October the 7th, they would have a lot of international solidarity for doing so. There could be a process, there could be indictments, there could be investigations. But it is very clear to me this is not about Hamas. It's about clearing, using the pretext of the horrific you know, attacks on the 7th. 
as a pretext for the ethnic cleansing and total destruction of, of Gaza, because tactically you can't imagine that that's what they're really trying to do. You know, when you when you say there's one Hamas commander and you know you're in a densely populated refugee camp like Jabalia and you drop massive ordnance on top of it, creating a huge crater and killing so many people, nobody, nobody believes that that was an attempt just to kill uh, uh, a particular commander. If you, you know, the metaphors are out there everywhere. You know, you have some some terrorist goes into a school and has a bunch of school children, you know, um, uh, and so the police say, okay, we'll drop a bomb and kill everybody in the building. We got the terrorists. You also killed all the kids, you know. Um, so, so clearly that is not the case. Neither, it's clear, is the main intention to free the hostages, the prisoners that have been taken by Hamas, because this is not what you would do if you were worried yeah. about the safety of the hostages. Who knows how many of them have been killed already under Israeli bombs, right? Uh, and how many more will be killed as well? So it's clear that it, that's really not what that is, uh, what that is, what that is about. Yeah, that's kind of stunning, by the way. That that point that you just brought up, because it's clear Israel does not care about Palestinian life, but they also don't care about Israeli life. They care about vengeance, and you know, I, I, what the New York Times I think talked about the, the aura of potency or something that they're seeking to reestablish. Yeah. That they would just be bombing potentially, and and we'll see when the some of the fog of war clears. But who knows? As you said, how many of their own Israeli uh, hostages they've killed themselves through bombing? Unquestionably, I mean they are they're with the Gazans. You know they're right, in the same yeah. places, and so and by the way they're in the hospitals getting treatment when hospitals are being bombed. They're you know all of this. So this is not about the hostages, and I don't even think it's vengeance. I, I think that it is a much more calculated, it's not a temper tantrum. It is a pretext for the clearing of Gaza. Uh, in the public, they've been trying to stir up as much hunger for vengeance as possible so that the government can have the, the, the space that it needs to, to carry out these kinds of atrocities. But I, I think it is, a, it is a very considered and intentional uh, series of actions that are going to continue as well. So... Um, but what, what, I, what I have said before is any Hamas fighters or, you know, armed groups living under occupation have a right to resist as a matter of international law against military targets. They don't have a right to attack civilians, right? So any Hamas fighters who, who committed war crimes against civilians or the commanders who ordered them should be held accountable under the rule of law. When I'm interviewed in Western media, everybody wants to hear that, but they don't want to talk about holding Israel accountable for its atrocities before October the 7th, including, you know, a peak of them throughout this year that led to these kinds of reactions. They don't want to talk about the atrocities that have been happening for 75 years and a lack of accountability there. And they, they don't want to talk about accountability for uh, Israeli war crimes since October the 7th, as if this is, you know, you solve this problem by seeking accountability for Hamas crimes. And then you ignore year after year, decade after decade, and again now, massive atrocity being per perpetrated by the Israelis. If you believe in the rule of law, the answer is, you know, fight whatever war you want to fight, but there are rules. You know, international humanitarian law, international human rights law, international criminal law um, uh, imposes rules, and those have to be respected by everybody, and they are not being respected by Israel. Um, so I'm all for accountability, but it's got to be accountability for all perpetrators and redress for all victims. So just for, for argument's sake, I want to convince, let's say I'm talking to people 
who are saying Israel has no other choice. Like you and I obviously agreed that ending the occupation is necessary. But let's say you're just a normie who doesn't think that the occupation should be ended or can be ended. What is a way to wage that war just to just to show people all the steps that they're not taking for safety? Like what is a way that they could prosecute the war that doesn't commit all these war crimes? Does that make sense, my, my question? I mean, it's a difficult question to answer because the law, the, the war, so, you know, the laws of war, they have two, two pieces, right? Uh, part of it is legal justification for going to war in the first place. And the other is legality of action once you're at war, the things that you do not violate, right? So like, you know, you're not committing aggression. And then while you're fighting the, the war after the aggression, you're not violating individual rights of people and so on. The problem is that Israel is standing on a very shaky moral ground when it wages war against occupied territories where it is the occupying power. Under international humanitarian law, their duty is, their principal duty is to protect the people in the occupied territory. So as long as that occupation continues to actually wage war, you can have police actions for public well-being and, and so on, but actually wage war in this way, a massive war like that, uh, they have a very difficult justification under, under international law for, for doing so. Um, but if they wanted to deal with the issue of armed attacks uh, in the country, um, and I'll go back to my original comment, you know, people living under a brutal foreign occupation will always and forever resist. If they kill every Hamas commander and combatant, they've just created thousands more with their current actions. You know, if you were born into a cage persecuted, spat upon, periodically bombed, denied hope, opportunity, movement, denied civil rights, political rights, economic and social rights, denied adequate food and shelter and housing and water and sanitation, um, uh, hated and despised and attacked your entire life and your parents as well and your grandparents as well, you're going to resist. I would resist, you would resist, anybody would resist. It's not something that, to, to, that people... and. And when you see that it's based upon who you are, your ethnic, uh, your ethnicity, uh, it cuts even more deeply and people, people are going to resist. And also when you're killed nonviolently resisting, that also doesn't help. Well, I mean, look at what the Palestinians have done. They have tried to resist through nonviolent means like boycotts and divestments and so on. And then they're called anti-Semites. They have tried to use courts and tribunals to bring their case under the rule of law, and then they're told that they're jeopardizing peace. They tried to have uh, Gandhi and uh, Martin Luther King-like marches, like the March of Return, and they're cut down hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them by Israeli snipers who target people in wheelchairs and who target children, who target medics and who target the, the, the press and who target uh, peaceful demonstrators and so on. And then if you try to fight back with armed struggle, you're a terrorist. So what, what, what the other side wants you to do is just to die or to go away. You don't have to die, but either you have to die or you have to go away. I mean, this is the whole genocidal mentality of the thing, the whole ethnic cleansing mentality of the thing. So, so you know, um, so it will not ever end. If you really want violence to end, you have to end the injustice. You have to end the occupation. You have to sit down and you have to be, it never happened. I mean, the entire Oslo process was a smokescreen. I say that as somebody who worked in the context of Oslo as a human rights advisor for the UN and the occupied territories, under the one of the architects of Oslo, Terry Larson, who was one of the original architects, um, uh, and so on, 
Um, and, and Oslo in the early years, it brought in some development aid and it brought in some humanitarian assistance and some daily space for the Palestinians to live with a little dignity after the daily abuses to which they've been subjected. But, but behind that wall of Oslo, what was happening was there was no intention of exchanging land for peace, as the slogan was. It was all a way of disarming the international community to allow the further expansion of Israeli settler colonialism into um, uh, into the West Bank and Jerusalem uh, to the point now where, as I said, there's nothing, meaningfully nothing left. Uh, and then this is the last piece that they want to deal with. I, I said in my letter, we're entering, you know, sort of the final phase of this project. And if the international community doesn't step up now, um, you know, the Palestinians will be forced to go the way of the Native Americans uh, and the successful genocide that was perpetrated against them. Um, and and that's, a, that's a too tough of a pill, I think, to swallow for most decent people around the world which is why we see so many people rising up uh, against it. So, so, you know, you could negotiate, you could follow international law, you could show goodwill by holding perpetrators of war crimes uh, um, accountable. Uh, you could have police actions where you think there are perpetrators, although it's a little unbalanced because how are the Palestinians going to arrest Israeli uh, war criminals? You know? um, but what you shouldn't be doing is continued expansion and massacres and, um, and, you know, frankly, trying to hold on to a paradigm that will never, ever, ever bring peace or security to anybody, ever. And, and you know, people need to know, I think the reason for this kind of open genocidal strategy is because they too have realized what I'm saying now, which is that it's impossible. You know, you, you're not going to lull the Palestinians into sleep. You just march silently to their death or their disappearance. Uh, and so, you know, they understand this far-right government uh, and this deeply racist core in the society that um, the only hope they have is ethnic cleansing and genocide. Uh, and it's not going to work either because, the you know, um, yeah, they're, they're not going to succeed in that way either. So I don't have any advice for them. Uh, um, except the advice that I have for every other country, which is international human rights, international law. I, I, I said before, you know, 1948, which was the year of the Nakba and the first genocidal purge, was the same year that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted. And it was the same year that apartheid uh, was adopted in South Africa. And the international community stayed very focused on insisting on human rights and international law in apartheid South Africa until apartheid fell. They didn't do the same thing for Palestine. They abandoned that paradigm when Oslo started. Uh, and this is what it has led to. So let's get back to international law. Let's get back to international human rights. Let's declare for Israel and Palestine what we declare for every other situation in the world, which is equality. What is Israel's goal right now with Gaza, the ethnic cleansing you mentioned? Is it for um, geopolitical reasons? It, people have been talking about gas, access to gas. Um, what, what do you think the real motives are? Is it a combination? I mean, I, I have no doubt that they will have already mapped out uh, whatever natural resource possibilities are available off the shore uh, of Gaza and, and so on. But I don't think that's the principal purpose. I think this has been... So here's... I mean, you can't talk about any of this without talking about settler colonialism and what, you know, what's behind these sorts, of, these sorts of movements. I mean, this is a movement, a settler colonial movement that goes back almost 100 years. 
and the intention is a very simple one, which is to wrest the land from the indigenous people and put it in the hands of a privileged religio-ethnic group uh, in place of those people because of a kind of supremacist ideology. I mean, when you, when you talk about equality for Christians, Muslims, and Jews, you're attacked very viciously by adherents of this particular political ideology uh, because that's offensive to them, right? That's, a, that's, a, they, they, that's when they say you want to destroy Israel because their idea of Israel is this, this you know, ethno-nationalist kind of, uh, kind of an entity. So, um, so I think the, the principal motive is just to wrest from the Palestinians the last pieces of land of historic Palestine, um, uh, including what is, in, what is in Gaza. And we see that it's been much more incremental in the West Bank. But if you look at the map, you see there's very little left there either. And I think that's the principal driving force here. I think there are other factors as well. You know, Netanyahu maybe would have been in jail by now on corruption charges, and he knows that in that country, the, as in many countries, the best way to uh, build public support and to divert attention away from your own crimes is to start a war and rally everyone behind you, you know. Um, so, you know, I think that's, that, that's a piece of it as well. But in the end, it all comes back to just this ethno-nationalist settler colonial project and finishing what was started in in 1948. And th that's why I think it's so important not to sort of play these calendar games where you just pick out a date when something bad happens and you say the world began on that date. Um, you have to look at these successive waves of ethnic cleansing that have defined this project since, since before 1948, but certainly since 1948. And that's what I think that's what's happening in Gaza. And if in the process they can get natural gas, if in the process Netanyahu can get a stronger political constituency, if in the process... They can build a security zone if in the process. All of that is gravy, but it's not the central point. You spent time in Gaza, living in Gaza. I did. What can you tell people about that experience? Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.